The Hidden Bible, Episode 1, Motivation and the Longest Day. Welcome to The Hidden Bible, a podcast about the strange, the obscure, the confusing, do I dare to say it, the contradictory passages of the Christian Bible. I am your host, Deacon Harvey Santiago, a Catholic permanent deacon from the Archdiocese of Baltimore, and you are listening to The Thank you, thank you, thank you. So good to see so many people here in the studio tonight. I would like to welcome you in what I hope will become a regular podcast about what I like to call the lesser known passages of the Christian Bible. You might be wondering, why am I going through all this trouble to make a podcast about this topic? Well, I have a couple of reasons. The first one is quite simply because many critics of religion often accuse Christians of ignoring some passages of the Bible in favor of others. Well, it is my experience that there is a bit of truth in this statement. Furthermore, some of the most vocal critics of Christianity use these passages to make some of the most outrageous claims about the Bible, Jesus, and the Church. And I feel that Christians are not giving an appropriate answer to them. My fear is that people who listen to these claims and are seeking for the truth, the ones on the sidelines, the ones that do not argue, but sit quietly, listen, and reflect, are not getting a clear Christian answer and are left with the erroneous idea that perhaps Christians do not have a good answer to these claims and accusations. But let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I downloaded an audio of an exchange between Ralph Reed, which is the founder of the Christian majority a few years back, and Bill Myers, a famous atheist who has a daily show on HBO. And I want you to listen to this exchange as an example of how the enemies of religion take one passage of the Bible and twist it to create a strawman that will prop up their arguments against Christianity. Also, I want you to listen to the Christian answer as another example of how we Christians sometimes provide a very poor answer to these questions. Now I added a link to this whole exchange, which lasts about six minutes and is included in the show notes. So here's something that's right out of the paper this week. Um, uh, There's a Gallup poll that that shows that uh, 28% of Americans believe that the Bible is literally true and should be taken as the literal truth. Are you one of those? 
Yes. Okay, I made a little list <laughs> of the things things that are in the Bible that if we took it literally true. Uh, slaves must submit themselves to their masters no matter how harsh. Right, right off the bat, we're, we're believing in slavery. Well, <laughs> this, was a, this was a pretty spirited debate in the United States in the 19th century. And actually, what, what occurred then, the slavery of, of ancient Rome, which Paul was writing about, was a very different kind of slavery. It wasn't chattel slavery. It was usually a form, it was usually a form of indentured servitude. Oh, come the on. The fact Ralph. is, Ralph, Bill, Ralph. the anti-slavery movement... Spartacus, came, come on, the, babe. We've the, all seen the movie. Bill. Sla there's no good slavery. See, no, the, I didn't say it was is, good. I'm not advocating it as a labor but system. But the Bible I'm does. Saying it was the totally Bible different. is okay with slavery. No, no it doesn't. Oh, and the anti-slavery movement in the United all States... Right came out okay. of the churches. It was a product of the Second Great Awakening. If a woman has and I talk about that in my book. Okay, I'm not going to get into a Bible support slavery debate at this time. I hope to make this one of the topics of a future podcast. I think that it is enough to say that Father Robert Barron wrote an excellent article in his blog, Word on Fire. So if you want to see a good Catholic answer to this question, head that way. Once again, I included a link in the show notes. The reason why I use this clip is to show how secularists like Bill Myers misrepresent the Bible. The problem with the way they read a work like the Bible is that they do not give this work the respect it deserves. And I'm not talking about religious respect, but intellectual respect. What do I mean with intellectual respect? Let me give you an example. Let's say that you sit down at home and pick up the Washington Post newspaper to read. Involuntarily, you give this literary work the intellectual respect it deserves. You go to the cartoons section and expect to be amused. You go to the editorial section and expect to be challenged in your political and social ideas. You go to the front page and expect to be informed. On each section, you know what the author intention is. And you read each section like they deserve to be read. When we read the Bible, we have to do the same thing. Because the Bible is not really a book. It is a selection of works written by ancient people with their own ancient world view. If we want to understand the Bible, we have to make an effort to keep in mind what was the author's intention at the time he or she wrote. What Mr. Meyer did was take one passage of the Bible and apply it to the whole, to imply the wrong message. It is as if you were to read in the Dilbert cartoon in the Washington Post that Dilbert is hiring a hitman to kill his boss. And you use this to make the claim that the Washington Post advocates murder. This is the aim of this podcast, to take these parts of the Bible which are being more and more misused and misrepresented and provide a proper answer and to show that when they are read in their proper context, they in fact present a coherent message of salvation. Now, I said that I had two reasons for this podcast. The second reason is because for a while I've been looking at communicating this message. I tried to do it in my blog, but it was taking me too long. 
For a while, I've been listening to other podcasts, and it became apparent to me that perhaps this might be the best way for me to expand my ministry. Now, I should warn you, I have never done anything like this before, so the going is going to be a bit rough for the first few podcasts. But I think I have said enough for now. What I would like to do is move into a segment I like to call... Mystery Laboratory. Welcome to the BML, a segment in which we take a critical look at some of the most amazing events recorded in the Bible. Using the tools of history, reason, and science, sprinkled with a bit of faith, seeking understanding. Today is June the 21st. And since this is the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, I decided to take a look at the longest day which was recorded in the Old Testament. Of course, we find the story of this day in the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua. Before I move ahead with the reading of the passage, I have to give you some background so you understand what is happening in the story. The book of Joshua records the conquest wars fought by the armies of Israel under the leadership of a man called, you guessed it, Joshua. These wars were fought in Canaan, what we call today Palestine and the Holy Land. When these wars were started, the armies of Israel were nothing more than a ragtag group of warriors. But with the help of Yahweh and Joshua's leadership, this group of warriors were able to defeat time and time again the armies of the people living in this area. One of the cities of Canaan, called Gibeon, seeing how Joshua was so successful in his battles, decided to make an alliance with him. There were five other cities surrounding Gibeon which were not happy with this arrangement and decided to join forces and attack Joshua's new allies. When the city heard of the approaching armies, they call on Joshua to honor their alliance. We take the story right at the moment in which Joshua is departing with his army to defend Gibeon. A reading from the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Asekah and Makedah. As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, 
the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them, as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Aihalan. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nations avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. Like I said, I selected this reading because today is the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, but also because I have seen this reading used to make an argument against the Bible as the Word of God. This argument goes like this. Simply put, how can a book supposedly inspired by an all-knowing God get the way the universe works so wrong. I'm talking about how Joshua asked God to stand still the sun. You see, in Joshua's mind, the sun moved across the sky, east to west, every day. But we know this is not the case. How can the book of Joshua make such a horrendous mistake about the way the universe works? Well, the thing is, the book of Joshua is just a historical account of how Joshua and his small band of warriors time and time again defeated much larger armies, slowly gaining control of all the land of Canaan. It presents what Joshua did and how God helped him. It is not a cosmology treaty. It makes no claims about how the things in this universe function. It just reports historical events of people with a very limited knowledge of the way the universe works. Its aim is not to say this is how the universe works, but this is how the universe acted that day. Now the question is then, what was going on that day which caused Joshua to ask God to stop the movement of the sun? And what happened that day to make Joshua and his men believe that God had answered his prayers? Let's take a closer look at the reading and see if we can find answers to these questions. The first few verses tell us that after receiving the request for help from Gibeon, the Lord assured Joshua of his victory. Now keep in mind Joshua was confronting the armies of five cities. So most likely this army was much, much larger than Joshua's little band of warriors. The reading states 
that Israel marched all night. From a previous verse, we know they started this march in Gilgal. So the distance Joshua and his men had to walk at night was about 18 miles, which in the mountainous terrain in which they were could be accomplished in about eight hours. This means that there is a very strong possibility the surprise attack to defend Gibeon started under the darkness of the early morning. Joshua's element of surprise threw his enemies in disarray and caused them to flee all the way down to Ezekah and Meshara through the pass of Ben-Horon, a trip of about 20 miles. It was during this retreat, according to the story, that God sent great hailstones which killed most of the enemies of Joshua and reduced the number of his enemies to a more manageable size. The reading implies that Joshua engaged his enemies after the hailstorm, which means that Joshua's army had to march 20 miles after the 18 miles overnight trip. That is 38 miles or 16 to 20 hours after they have left Gilgal, which will place the final battle in the late afternoon. It is at this time which Joshua makes his prayer to God to stand the sun still, so he can finish what we will call in modern times a mop-up operation. Now let's do an assessment of Joshua's and his armies here. They have walked all night, they attacked early in the morning, and now after a day-long chasing of their enemies, they find themselves battling in hand-to-hand combat. They were tired, hungry, and most likely they were operating on pure adrenaline. But most importantly, they wanted to finish the job started so many hours ago. Being the late afternoon, Joshua realizes he is running out of daylight. So in his mind, the sun needs to stop in order to make this day longer and to finish disposing of his enemies. To me, Joshua's prayer brings to mind the many times in life I have found myself wishing the day had more than 24 hours. It is after this prayer that something happened, something which led Joshua and his men to believe that in fact the sun has stood in the sky and the period of daylight had gone way beyond what was expected this time of the year. It's obvious that Joshua was asking God for the impossible and still God answered his prayer. Of course, since this book is a historic book, we only know what God did. We are forced to speculate on how he did it. And this is where I would like to spend the rest of our time. Many years ago, I worked with a brilliant mathematician who told me that he had lost his faith because of this story. He reasoned that the only way God could make the sun stand still in the sky was by stopping the rotation of the earth. But if God were to stop the rotation of the earth, everything that is not literally nailed to the ground will come out flying because of the change in rotational speed. 
not to mention the catastrophic effect this event will have in plate tectonics. My friend's interpretation of this story is what I like to call the literal interpretation. Of course, my friend could not conceive of a god powerful enough to take into account all the effects of stopping the earth rotation and prevent any ill effects of this action. But an infinitely powerful being would have the power to do this and more. I think the mistake my friend made was that he limited himself to just one potential explanation the most literal of all. But there are other explanations that could cause Joshua and his men to think that the day lasted longer and that the sun stood in the middle of the sky. In fact, some scholars have proposed some pretty good possibilities which will account for this. Some people have speculated that perhaps since the sun was on the west, there was some type of meteorological phenomena which reflected the light of the sun after it has set. Something like sun dogs or a phenomenon known as noctilucent clouds, which might also relate to the strange hailstorm storm which killed many that day. Others have speculated that perhaps a meteor appeared bright as the sun before it disintegrated in the atmosphere, making the night as bright as the day. To me, some of the most interesting theories have to do with time itself. One of these goes like this. Since we know that time is relative, an all-powerful God will have the power to locally slow down time, making it seem as if everything moving outside of this bubble, the sun, the moon, and the stars, are moving slowly or standing still. Pretty much like what is known as the twin paradox in physics. Now, this explanation reminds me of an old Star Trek episode called Wink of an Eye in which a group of aliens existing in a high level of acceleration attempts to take over the Enterprise. In the episode, we could see how, while the aliens moved around the ship, everyone else appears static. Another theory I find fascinating is based on time perception. There is a well-known psychological phenomenon in which a person in high level of stress become so focused that it looks as if time has slowed down around him. I place a link in the show notes to an article which describes this phenomena. With Joshua and his men having been for such a long time in a high level of stress, it is possible that they lost track of time itself. After all, in the times of Joshua, there was no reliable way of measuring time. So after repeated cases of feeling time slowing down, they might have thought the day was much longer. And in their minds, the only way this could be possible is by divine intervention. Now, I will be remiss if I were not to mention another interpretation based on the type of language used by the writers 
of this book. If you read this book, you will notice that the style is pretty historical, meaning it flows as a regular narrative of events, until it quotes Joshua's prayer. The prayer takes lyrical overtones, and after this, there is a reference to the book of Jashar, an ancient book of poems and sagas about Jewish heroes that seems to mention Joshua's adventures. This might point to the fact that this event really never happened, and that it is just a poetic way of saying that on a long day of fighting superior enemies, God helped the armies of Joshua to such a degree that even nature, the hailstorm, even creation itself, the sun and the moon, worked in favor of the armies of Joshua to bring Israel's victory against his enemies. Like I mentioned at the beginning, the book of Joshua, being a historical book, only concerns itself with what happened that day, not how it happened. On this sense, it only reports how Joshua and his enemies perceived these events. And this is an important point about biblical interpretation. Sometimes what we read in scripture, especially historical books, is how events are perceived and not the reality of the event itself. With the limited knowledge they had about their universe, Bible writers will do or say things that might seem completely alien to us. It is up to us to investigate what was their situation and frame of mind. Only then can we get a complete picture of what was really happening at the moment and what kind of lesson can we gain from their experience. If you ask me, this story is nothing more and nothing else than a demonstration of the power of prayer, a demonstration about how sometimes God answers our prayers even when we don't know what we're really asking for, and about the length God is willing to go to answer our petitions. Okay, folks, that's all the time I have today. I would like to thank you for listening, and if you have any feedback or is there's any passages you would like me to address in future podcasts, just drop me a note at the email address, thehiddenbible at gmail.com. Once again, that is thehiddenbible at gmail.com. And be aware, the Hidden Bible is all one word. The next time we meet, we will answer two questions. The first, is the Bible really the word of God? And the second one, did Jesus really said that parents can murder their children? Until then, and through the intercession of Saint Ephraim the Syrian, deacon and doctor of the church, may the blessings of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen.